0: This is part three in the three-part series on the syrian civil war this part is called finding answers for tomorrow in the previous two parts we covered the syrian civil war itself we also talked about the origins and the execution of the u.s model of intervention called the afghan model and the russian model of intervention called the chechen model if you haven't listened to those it's really recommended that you do it would kind of help contextualize what we're going to talk about today. As a sort of quick recap, the U.S. intervened in Syria to try and topple Assad, Russia intervened to stop them, and Russia succeeded. And so now we have to try and understand what that means. The successful Russian intervention in Syria says a lot about all the parties involved, and it says a lot about the state of geopolitics today. And I think it sheds some light on where the world might be in the future. So let's start with Russia. What does this say about them? What does their success say about the state of the Russian military today? Well, one thing should be immediately made clear, or it should be very obvious. This idea that the Russian armed forces are some out-of-date, poorly funded holdover from a bygone era, that these are still Soviet troops marching with AK-47s. That's entirely false. A favorite thing of casual observers is to compare the amount of money the U.S. spends on its military and the amount of money other people spend, especially Russia. And then from this, they conclude that, oh, well, since the U.S. spends way more money, the U.S. military is obviously way better and no one can even compete. But that's not how the military works. That's not how governments work. And that's just not how government budgets work. And what's strange is I've heard this same argument from people who study this stuff. Maybe they aren't big into international security per se, but they've got their finger on the pulse on of international politics. Maybe they're academics. Maybe they're analysts. Maybe they're representatives or presidential now, candidates. Keep in mind that mil- our military spending has gone up every single year that I've been in office. We spend more on our military than the next 10 countries combined. China, Russia, France, the United States. United Kingdom, you name it. Next ten. So ostensibly, they should know what they're talking about. And the argument usually goes something like, the U.S. spends more on its military than the next ten countries combined, seven of which are allies. Ergo, no one can even compete with us. Or my personal favorite is, Russia has a smaller GDP than California and Canada, therefore they aren't able to fund a military that can compete with the West. But this is fundamentally flawed thinking. And there's some things we need to consider if we're going to try and determine the threat Russia poses to us today. So number one, Russia gets a lot more for a ruble than we get for a dollar. Russia owns many of the companies that produce their equipment, so they essentially get it at cost. When the US buys something new, it has to pay first world prices to private first world companies who employ first world labor paying first world wages. Russia, and for that minor China, do not. One estimate I heard was that the U.S. pays up to us five times, six times as much for a comparable piece of equipment than Russia or China does. So that's number one. Number two, the Russian bureaucracy is top down. It's a clear vertical. When the U.S. military wants something, whether it's a new piece of technology or new equipment, it has to draft up a list of requirements, it has to receive bid from competitors, it has to get approval by Congress, and history shows that Congress is more likely to dictate that old equipment be updated rather than spend the money on new platforms. So the Army comes in and tells Congress, we want a new tank. We want to build one that's faster and has a bigger gun. Nine times out of ten, Congress is going to tell the Army to just put a bigger engine and a bigger gun on the tank they already have. In Putin's Russia, if the Army wants something, they wait to see how the budget turns out for that year, although it's typically planned out for the next few years so that each department can plan accordingly, but it can change year to year depending on which branch is able to lobby Putin for more funds. And then essentially, when they want something, they put in the order and it's underway. Case in point for all of this, the U.S. main battle tank, was first designed in 1970. This is the M1A1 Abrams. The third generation of this same platform, the M1A3, entered service in 2017. Even though it's upgraded and has some of the latest and greatest technology, especially the Tusk modules which outfit it for urban warfare, the platform is still nearly 50 years old. It's an incredible battle-tested piece of machinery. And even today, it's probably one of the best pieces of military hardware available, period. But it is getting old, which means it's tougher to get it compliant with newer technology. The Russians have a brand new main battle tank. It's called the T-14 Armada. And this was built from the ground up in 2015. It is designed to take advantage of the latest technologies in firing, in communication, armor, and maneuverability. In some ways, it's far more capable than the Abrams. In some ways, it's more technologically advanced, such as its manless turret. It only needs a three-person crew versus the Abrams four-person crew. That might not seem like a lot, but what that means is that for every three Abram tanks, the U.S. can crew, Russia can crew four. And so in some ways, the Armada is a more effective and capable battle tank that also manages to be cheaper than the Abrams. Some would say it's got better armor, although that's always hard to test because, frankly, the only tank-on-tank conflict on a large scale that's been able to be studied with the Abrams was against Saddam's military, where the Abrams pulled out ahead of some older T-72 models. Your Armada is an incredibly capable tank. And it's probably one that in a standoff would, at the very least, be as good as the latest and greatest M1A3 Abrams, at the very least. And by the way, the Russians like to upgrade their stuff too. The T-72, a tank originally built in 1971 to compete with the Abrams, that was upgraded in 2016. It's called the T-72B3, and that too is probably comparable to the Abrams. I don't know the cost of the upgrade, but I'm willing to bet it's far cheaper than what the U.S. has to pay. Heritage put out a sort of audit of the U.S. military, and they even... Talk about the performance of tanks and where the Abrams sits. And according to them, the TC-72B3 is the most maneuverable tank on the battlefield. So that's number two. The Russian military's acquisition is top down. So they're able to get new platforms into research, into development, into production, and into the field quicker and more effectively than the U.S. can. And they're able to do it cheaper. See point number one. Number three, people see the U.S. military budget and they immediately think, what on earth are they buying with all that money? 2018, the U.S. military budget, I think, is $780 billion. And there are people I talk to who say, you know, what are we, how many more tanks do we need? How many more aircraft carriers do we need? What are we buying with $780 billion?" Well, the answer is not nearly as much as you think. Only about 10% of the U.S. military budget goes towards equipment acquisition. And that's buying new stuff. And that number vacillates every time the budget's made. 25% of the whole budget goes towards salary and benefits for the soldiers. Our soldiers are some of the most well-paid soldiers on the planet. If you include the cost of benefits, they are the best paid soldiers on the planet. In the U.S., soldiers make, if you include the cost of benefits, $100,000 a year. From the get go. In fact, the general metric that's sort of used in the US is it costs $100,000 to move it, a soldier in any branch to active duty. So 25% of the US military budget goes towards salary and benefits. Another large chunk goes towards maintenance and operations. Because we have a lot of operations going, those can't suddenly stop being funded. We have a lot of military equipment, those need new parts. I read that I think it's the Seahawk helicopters. Those require 16 man hours of maintenance, or maybe it's like 30 man hours of maintenance for every one hour spent in the air. Military equipment is tricky. They, it needs a lot of maintenance. And that's expensive. Now acquisitions have increased under Donald Trump, but it should be noted that the defense community has really pushed for this increase. And I think it's exactly because of things like Syria. And I think it's exactly because Russia is modernizing and becoming more capable faster than we expected. So we need the increased acquisitions, but we're not buying nearly as much new or even old equipment as people think we are. Comparatively, Russia has been on a spending spree. So that's number three. We're not buying as much stuff as people think we are. Number four, and this is an important one, Russia's acquisitions are more narrow. So what do I mean by that? Well... When the U.S. considers the equipment it's going to use in the future, it has to consider a lot of things. It has to consider use in peacekeeping, peace enforcement, humanitarian uses, general warfare. It has to consider use by multiple branches. It has to consider our NATO allies. When the U.S. wants a new piece of equipment, it has to be very proactive in thinking about what the future of kinetic warfare is going to look like. Kinetic warfare being an actual shooting war, as opposed to something more cyber-oriented. All Russia has to do is design and acquire weapons that counter the ones we make. That's a much more narrow focus. It's the difference between saying, let's design the rifle of tomorrow, and saying, you see that rifle he's using? Let's do that, but make it cheaper and make it a little better. The U.S. spent billions of dollars, to say nothing of the man-hours, Researching, developing, and designing the Patriot Missile Defense System. For much cheaper, Russia can focus on building a missile that all it has to do is beat that system. And by the way, they're doing this with hypersonic weapons. So let's look at stealth aircraft as an example. The U.S. builds top-of-the-line stealth fighters and bombers. And yet for much cheaper, Russia builds the S-400, which is probably the single greatest mobile anti-air weapon on the planet. Now, we don't know if it can drop an F-35 out of the sky, but we're certainly worried it can. And to make matters even more concerning, they're designing the S-500. But why do I bring all this up? I bring it up because we need to be wary about letting Russia's poor economic state fool us into a sense of security. Because we should remember, they pulled off the Syrian intervention while under economic sanctions, and they did it on the cheap. According to the Euromaidan press in Ukraine, And this is an admittedly pro-Ukrainian, anti-Russian source. By July 2017, Russia had spent $2.2 billion fighting and supporting Assad in Syria. That figure, according to the Euromaidan press, that comes from the Yabloko opposition party in Russia. Since we don't have any figures to work with, let's assume that's true. And this figure comes from an opposition party who doesn't want Russia to be there, so they have reason to inflate that number, right? But, you know what, let's work with it. $2.2 two point two billion dollars between twenty fifteen and twenty seventeen. For fun, let's say Russia's spending way more than that. Let's triple that number and say Russia spent six point six billion reversing and defeating an American intervention. No way they spent anywhere near that amount, but for argument's sake, let's just say that's what they spent. Six point six billion dollars. Well, between twenty fourteen and twenty seventeen, the US's intervention in Syria cost about billion. And the DOD is expected to spend another $15 billion in 2018 to try and wrap up the fight against ISIS. And by the way, I think the fight against ISIS is going to go into 2019. So they're going to need more money. This should be a wake-up call to anyone who doubts Russia's ability to conduct a campaign against American interests in 2018. Because they were able to do it in Syria, and they were able to do it on the cheap. A time will come when the U.S. can't or won't want to spend $20 billion where Russia is spending $2 billion. And then what happens? What do we do then? What happens when we have to spend more, but it's politically unacceptable back home? Russia is not the same military backwater that they became in the 80s and exemplified in the 90s. To write them off as such would be a mistake. And this is where I think Barack Obama made a huge mistake. In his presidential debate with Mitt Romney, Romney says that he views Russia as the greatest national security threat facing the United States. Obama responds with something like... Ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because, you know, the Cold War's been over... For now, was Romney right? Was Mitt Romney correct? Was Russia the greatest national security threat facing the united states probably not at the time there were greater concerns to say any one threat is the greatest threat is a little simplistic in a post Cold war post 9 11 world but obama's outlook and especially his quote-unquote russian reset that was also a mistake the best way to approach russia i think is with an old saying some attribute it to winston churchill But the saying goes that Russia is never as strong as she looks, and Russia is never as weak as she looks. And for where we are in 2018, I think that's about right. She's much, much stronger than most Americans think she is. But as we'll see in a second, Russia's not as strong as I may be making her out to be. I've recorded this two or three times now, and every time I get to this part, I... I think back at just how I was describing the Russian military, and I think, God, am I painting this picture of an invincible Russian army? I hope not, because that's not the case. And I'll explain that in a second as we get into what the Syrian intervention says about the United States. What does this defeat say about the U.S., and what does this defeat say about the Afghan model? Where is the U.S. with Syria today? Dexter Filkins, a columnist for The New Yorker, he writes, quote, As the war began, President Obama refused all but the most token support for the rebels battling Assad, fearing a quagmire. Iran, Russia, and Hezbollah rushed into the vacuum and saved Assad. During the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald Trump criticized Obama's Syria policy, but since becoming president, he has more or less continued it. End quote. For me, this represents what most people and most analysts think happened with Syria. That Obama just didn't give the rebels the support they needed. That Iran, and then later Russia, came in and saved Assad. That Trump was criticizing him, but that hasn't done anything differently. But unfortunately, that's not all that accurate. Or I don't think it is. I think this gives undue credit to Hezbollah and Iran. It was only after Russia's intervention that the war started to turn back into Assad's favor. Iran and Hezbollah were there, and they were still losing. Russia comes in, now he's winning. And... Filkins also greatly underestimates what the U.S. committed to the fight. He calls it token support, and that's maybe true in the political arena. Obama wasn't running around rooting on the FSA at the United Nations, though he was advocating for Assad to abdicate. But rebel groups seeking to overthrow Assad received substantial U.S. support, enough support that they were on the verge of overthrowing him. In regards to Trump's policy, I think Filkins' analysis is both correct in that Trump has more or less continued the Obama-era policy, except he's stepped up the fight against ISIS, but Filkins is also wrong. First, in his campaign, Donald Trump was very big on not getting the U.S. involved in Syria. And Russia are now against us. So she wants to fight. She wants to fight for rebels. There's only one problem. You don't even know who the rebels are. Mr. Trump, Mr. So what's Trump the your and, two minutes is up. And one thing up. I have to say, two I don't is like up. Assad at all, but Assad is killing ISIS. Russia is killing... But after Trump becomes president, Assad launches a chemical attack on, I think it was the suburbs around Damascus, and Trump responds in April 2017 with a missile strike against a Syrian government airfield, the airfield that supposedly the chemical weapon strike uh, originated from. Now, the strike itself was ineffective at best. We're talking 60 cruise missiles at at least a million dollars a pop, all to destroy an airfield that the Syrian Air Force simply repaves and is back to using within a week. But the strike was symbolically a massive shift. I can't imagine it didn't cause Assad and Russia to at least pause for a second and get a little worried. They've been operating with the understanding that the United States was never going to attack Syrian government assets. But then here's Trump, who now seems willing to break that norm and to directly engage and attack the Syrian government. And both Assad and Russia know that if the U.S. decides to go all out on the Syrian government, the Syrian government is gone. And there's an interesting lull in activity after the strike, as if they're wondering if it's safe to come back out. And soon enough, Assad is back, and after a brutal offensive against some remaining rebel cities, an offensive where chemical weapons are reportedly used, Trump strikes Assad again. A short time ago, I ordered the United States Armed Forces to launch... Precision strikes on targets associated with the chemical weapons capabilities of Syrian dictator. Rashad this time the strike Assad. is massive and by the way, multilateral. Britain and France joined the US in destroying three of Assad's chemical weapons facilities. How much damage did this really do? Probably a decent amount. You can't just replace three chemical weapons facilities. And as of now, Assad hasn't used chemical weapons again that we know of. I doubt it's because he doesn't have the stockpile. If he was using them before, I'm sure he has others prepositioned at various spaces. I attended a discussion where the speaker brought up the idea of Assad's red line. The basic idea was that Obama's red line didn't matter. What really mattered was Assad's red line. What line had to be crossed to where Assad would use chemical weapons. And this speaker theorized that Assad's red line was if the rebels attack anywhere near Damascus. I don't want to get too deep into that discussion. It's interesting, but it's just some food for thought. The takeaway from this strike against Assad's chemical weapons facilities, however, is that the Trump administration is clearly willing to hit Assad directly, despite Russian presence and despite Russian objections. Trump, and let's give credit where credit is due, France and the UK, They are now willing to challenge Assad on certain points. But what this all makes me wonder is, what if we had been doing this from the beginning? What if Barack Obama had taken this stance to begin with? What if we started the intervention like this? What if the United States had pursued a version of the Afghan model that, from the get-go, directly targets the Assad government? Would Russia have been able to stop it? Does Russia still win because they're willing to exert more violence? Does the Chechen model beat the Afghan model? If that one caveat is taken off the table, that Obama didn't want to strike Syrian government forces. If that's off the table, and we have the SOF, special forces, on the ground calling in airstrikes on Assad troops, and Russia intervenes, does Russia still win that confrontation? I don't think they do. Despite the, and I hate to call it praise, but... That's kind of what I've been doing. Despite the praise I've given the Chechen model, I think the Afghan model is better. I think it's currently done in a way that's more expensive than it has to be, but I think it's better than the Chechen model. I think if Barack Obama tells his national security staff to directly target the Assad government and Russia responds by intervening the way they did, then America wins that fight. The fact that America proved it wasn't willing to target the Assad government probably gave Vladimir Putin some security knowing he could intervene and not have to face American troops. Because for all their modernization, for all of their reforms, and for all of their capability and willingness to employ violence, the Russian military still pales in comparison to the American military. And Russia knows this. Putin is no fool. And if we're interested in seeing how a confrontation might have played out, we don't need to look any further than the Battle of Kasham in 2018. The U.S. military is calling this an unprovoked attack that lasted for over three hours last night, which began around midnight when 500 fighters affiliated with Russia and Syria's Assad regime began an attack on a U.S. outpost in eastern Syria, five miles over the Euphrates River. The Russian-backed fighters attacked with tanks, artillery, and mortars. When the rounds landed too close for comfort, U.S. Special Operations forces on the ground called in the massive counterattack. The details of this battle, Kasham is a sort of village area in Syria. The details differ depending on who you talk to, but I'm going to use the description of events as described by Lieutenant General Jeffrey Harigian of the U.S. Air Force's Central Command. This comes from a press briefing with the DOD, and he says, quote, on the evening of February 7th, 2018, the coalition acted in self-defense, where coalition advisors were present to support the SDF from a hostile force launching an unprovoked coordinated attack across the Euphrates River against an established SDF position. Side note, when he says advisors, he means U.S. Special Forces. He continues, quote, The hostile forces initiated the attack by firing artillery and tank rounds at the SDF position, followed by a battalion-sized dismounted formation attempting to advance on partner forces under cover of supporting fire from artillery, tanks, and multiple launch rocket systems and motors, end quote. So what we have here are local rebels supported by the U.S. Special Forces who come under attack by Syrian government troops who are in turn supported by Russian Special Forces. And the U.S. soldiers on the ground respond to this attack in the exact manner dictated by the Afghan model. Herrigan continues, saying, quote, We immediately contacted the Russian officials on the deconfliction telephone line to alert them to the unprovoked attack on a known SDF and coalition position. After these calls, coalition officials approved strikes to destroy hostile forces. On the ground, Air Force Joint Terminal Attack Controllers embedded with the SDF called in precision strikes for more than three hours from aircraft and ground artillery directing F-15Es, MQ-9s, B-52s, AC-130s, and AH-64 Apaches to release multiple precision fire munitions and conduct strafing runs against the advancing aggressor force, stopping their advance and destroying multiple artillery pieces and tanks. As the hostile forces turned west and retreated, we ceased fire, End quote. So essentially, the Syrian and Russian forces attack this position and the U.S. forces on the ground call in airstrikes, cause so much damage that the attack is turned around and they have to retreat. Now, in this battle, it's estimated that 50 to 100 Syrian troops are killed. The Hezbollah militia who are also with them, they suffer casualties. The Wagner Group, the Russian military corporation which employs veterans from Russia's special forces and intelligence units, they supposedly lose anywhere between five and five hundred soldiers in the battle. The coalition suffers one SDF fighter wounded. So here we have the Afghan model doing what it does, and the only thing missing from the Chechen model is Russian air support. Now, we could theorycraft all day about whether the U.S. would have been able to respond if, say, Russian S-400 anti-air systems were in the area and willing to shoot down U.S. airplanes. But in a straight fight, if Russia had its own air support, I think the U.S. still pulls out ahead. We have better aircraft. We have more experienced pilots who get more flight hours in a month than many Russian pilots do in a year. And more importantly, our standoff weapons are way better than Russia's. Standoff weapons are things like cruise missiles. These are weapons you can fire without having to worry about the enemy returning fire because you're shooting this weapon from a thousand miles away. The U.S. Tomahawk missile has an operational range of about 1,000 miles. I read in one report that Russia was launching cruise missiles from the Caspian Sea into Syria, which is about 500 miles away. Now, this is a big deal. This is a big development for Russia, and they're investing more into it, and so they're getting better at it. But we should keep in mind that despite these advances, despite these accomplishments, the fact is they're catching up to the cruise missile capabilities that we had in the 1970s. Again, Russia is this mixed bag of incredible foresight, modernization, and reform, but on the other hand, they're saddled not just with the Soviet legacy, but with recovering from the ashes of what it left behind. I think as that legacy fades, and this new way of Russian thinking and Russian identity becomes solidified, I think Russia becomes more capable. Maybe not more capable than the United States, but certainly more capable than they are today, when they successfully completed this intervention. This is a bit of a tangent, but next to Joe Rogan and Adam Carolla, Dan Carlin is sort of the godfather of history podcasts. If somehow you're listening to this, I'm sure you've listened to some of his. If you haven't, go do it. But for me, he's easily the best in the business with Mike Duncan at a close second. And in one of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History addendum episodes, he says that he believes that Nazi Germany's World War II army would be immediately better if you got rid of the Nazis. If you keep all the tech, all the military thinking, but you just got rid of the Nazi political part of the equation, Germany's World War II military instantly gets better. And I think something similar could be said about Russia. And I think Russia understands that. And that's why you have people like Putin and Gerasimov and Shoigu pushing not just for reform of the military, but a reform of Russian thought. And I think as they develop and as they progress, Russia won't have to rely on the Chechen model anymore. Or at the very least, the Chechen model will evolve into something that probably more closely resembles the U.S.-Afghan model. Because it is effective. The Afghan model does work. So, long story long, does the Chechen model work? Yes. Can it defeat a U.S. intervention? Yes, so long as you don't have to directly confront the Americans. In a straight comparison... Let's say they're not competing, but one model is carried out in one country and the other model is carried out in another. Which one is better? I don't know. Both accomplish the initial objective of the intervention, but both also have serious problems with the state-building aspect that comes after. The only evidence I can really look at is Chechnya post-Russian intervention, the second time around, and Afghanistan post-US intervention, and Iraq post-US intervention, but mostly Afghanistan, because that's where the model was used. And when you look at these countries, I think Chechnya is in a better spot. Now, that's for a variety of reasons. Everything from historical tribal enmities to democracy versus autocracy to foreign interference. But what's been made clear is that the Russian way of doing intervention works. And I can't believe countries like China, Iran, and North Korea aren't taking note. Being able to defend a country in your sphere of influence is something China and Iran have thought about and planned for, but they've never really had the opportunity to test it out. Iran is getting a bit of a lesson in Yemen, but in there, Saudi Arabia is doing the heavy lifting. But Russia's successful intervention in Syria is the first case study. It's the first one they can look at and say, oh, maybe this is how you solve that puzzle. Of greater concern, maybe they see the Russian intervention in Syria and say, oh, Here's a way to go back on the offensive. Because not everything can be solved with diplomacy and economics. Sometimes it's cheaper and more expedient to use force. An offensive geopolitical power is something that was gone for a long time because it was monopolized in the hands of the West. China is challenging that now with its One Belt, One Road initiative, but there are pros and cons to it. Most notably, it's absurdly expensive. Also, the countries on the receiving end of it find out a little too late that they get kind of a raw deal sometimes. But with Russia serving as proof that you can still use force and violence to go on the offensive and use it to accomplish your objectives, despite the U.S. being in your neighborhood, does that make China, Iran, or North Korea more likely to give it a shot? I don't know. And how about the U.S.? Is the Chechen model something we would eventually try? What if we get tired of overly expensive interventions that take five years to finish? Maybe the American people say, you know what? I don't want to spend $15 on Syria this year. Let's just do what the Russians did. It's cheaper. It's faster. I think that is a possibility because the Chechen model is something the U.S. has done before. If you want to frame the U.S. war with Japan in the Second World War as a modern intervention, it looks a hell of a lot closer to the Chechen model than the Afghan model. You want to talk about shock and awe, how about the firebombing of Tokyo? How about two atomic bombs? Propaganda and disinformation? Check. Filling the local government with pro-US leaders? Check. The only thing you're really missing is the brutal counterinsurgency operations, but that's because there was no real insurgency after the war was over. So the US, in that sense, has used the Chechen model before. And I can't say it would be impossible that we wouldn't maybe one day go back to using it. Maybe this all instead says something about Russia. Maybe it says that if you're unable to pull off something as highly complicated and resource intensive as a, quote, proper intervention, then you should instead treat interventions as you would treat any other war. And there's some logic to that. But my fear... My fear is that as that logic becomes more pronounced in the world, and leaders start to take note and take into consideration as a method to achieve their regional or global ambitions, that it starts to become more regular. And as it becomes more regular, the opportunity for someone to make a mistake and shoot the wrong soldier or push the wrong button becomes far more likely. And even accidents aside, my fear is in the ripple effects of Russia's successful intervention in Syria. My fear is about the precedent it sets, that somewhere down the line, this will eventually lead to the return of armed conflict between great powers. And unfortunately, that's much more likely to happen as the U.S. descends from its hegemonic role, because you're not going to have the U.S. around to keep the peace. This is something that has always bristled my European friends. They just hate this idea that the U.S. is some great peacemaker, but it really is. The U.S. has been the greatest force for peace among great powers since World War II. It's a bit of an overused and admittedly flawed metaphor, but the world was an incredibly violent playground until the U.S. became the biggest kid in the sandbox. And it should be noted that before you had the U.S., you had Britain. Before them, you had Mongolia, Rome, Persia. Absolute hegemons serve a purpose. And starting in 1991, if two kids in the sandbox of geopolitics had a problem, the U.S. could either force them to make nice or threaten to beat one or the other up. Now, that doesn't mean the U.S. didn't occasionally abuse this power. All hegemons inevitably do. There are some things in Latin America I'm sure we'd rather everyone forgot. But as a whole, and compared to those who previously held that title... America has been the greatest force for world peace and cooperation and the best actor, the most moral actor among the world's previous hegemons. And it's been this force for peace through its unquestioned economic and, more importantly, its military might. But what happens if that might is gone? What happens when people start to question if that might and that force is capable? What if they start to question if it's even valid? What happens when the U.S. can no longer enforce the rules of peaceful competition? And this is why Syria is important. This is why the Syrian civil war is important. Because it's here, in this conflict, that we started finding out. So that wraps up this series on the Syrian civil war and the U.S. and Russian intervention efforts. Thanks for giving it a listen. Keep on the lookout for more episodes. They will be coming down the line. i got a few different topics in mind. If there's anything you'd like to add to the conversation, feel free to email me at boppodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.